Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hi, everyone. I am Ilana Leone, and welcome to this week's episode of All Things Marketing and Education. Today, I am really excited to talk with Rebecca Shaddix, who I think is one of the more brilliant minds in marketing in ed tech. We'll be talking about all things go-to-market plans. And if you don't know what that is, like me a long time ago, I didn't know. Don't worry. After this episode, you will know. And we'll also be breaking it down step-by-step, inch-by-inch, and I'll be asking all the fundamental questions. So if you're an ed tech company, this episode is not to be missed. If you're an educator, this episode may be particularly helpful for any one of you that are thinking about transitioning into the world of ed tech or really any educator that wants to gain insight on how ed tech companies work, what are their goals, how do they begin to measure success. If you know that, you're a better partner for them too. So back to my beautiful friend, Rebecca. I actually met Rebecca from a tweet I sent her in October of 2019. And Rebecca, I think that's absolutely crazy that we met kind of like a blind date on Twitter. Um, and. I tell this story to my audience because it's the power of Twitter. It's the power of social media. Um, I didn't. I actually thought, Rebecca, I've known you for five years. It's, it's only been like three or something. Um, I just, for my audience sake, I want to go into our initial exchange a bit to show you all this amazing power of Twitter. So I sent this tweet. I just I didn't published- remember this. So this will be fun. Yeah, this is the tweet. Um, I can link it to you later. But I said, at Rebecca Sadwick, enjoyed your Forbes post. I was just talking to a former EdTech founder, and we reflected on one of the points you touched on, scale versus depth. Many startups are being forced to grow fast, but by doing this, they jeopardize actually fulfilling their user needs. I can't believe I got that into a tweet, one. (laughs) But you liked it and followed me. And I don't know if we went to DMs or we went just um, public, but we ended up setting up a coffee date and said, hey, you're going to be in San Francisco. Let's have coffee. And I remember our coffee date too. And I was kind of intimidated. This Forbes writer who knows so much, she wants to have coffee with me. Um, But the rest is history. And I just feel like you have helped me grow so much. I've learned so much from you. Um, and I just want to, for those people that always think that, you know, social media is only used for entertainment's sake, know that it's amazing for networking and finding people that are like-minded or can inspire you like I did with Rebecca. So I wanted to share that. (laughs) I just thought it'd be a little Um, bit of memory. Yeah. I don't remember that. I actually went to a conference in New York or an unconference almost exclusively of people who had met on Twitter. Almost nobody in the room had met in real life. So I think it's a great place, like you said, to have your ideas challenged by people in your niche. 
Rebecca is currently a managing partner of Strategica Partners, a go-to-market strategy consulting group that focuses on strategic, financial, environmental, and human perspectives. And don't worry, we'll get into all of what that means, and she'll talk to you a lot in this episode about that in the context she brings. She also led marketing as director of marketing at GoGuardian, which Inc. 5000 calls the fastest growing education company in U.S. history. She has been recognized as the Los Angeles Business Journal's rising star of 2019 for her track record of growing startups. So I mentioned all this stuff, one, because I know she won't because she's humble. And two, I want to really display how much expertise Rebecca has in this. And I'm just so grateful for her time. So Rebecca is now the VP of marketing at Curious Cardinals. And that pairs K-12 students with college mentors, which is super cool because it bridges that really much needed gap. And it helps them develop the skills they'll need to become creative and confident lifelong learners. And I love that term on lifelong because it's not just about the in-school part of it all. Uh, Rebecca was recognized as the Los Angeles Business Times, uh, the Los Angeles Business Journal's rising stars of 2019 for her track record of growing startups. We're both mentors in various ed tech startup accelerators together. She, like I said, is a Forbes contributor. She writes about implications in society around the advancements in the tech sector in particular. Um, I could go on and on about Rebecca. Her entire bio is going to be in the show notes as well. Um, I want to mention that what I love about these guests on these shows is they give back so much and they're passionate about education um, and the future of really our society. So she's also the chair of the board of directors of Girl Develop It, which is a nonprofit organization that helps women and non-binary adults transition into technical careers. So all of that said, what this bio does not say is when you meet Rebecca, she's an incredibly kind, selfless, and passionate person. And I never doubted that she is 100% dedicated to really improving and making a difference in education. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. That was quite the intro. Great to be here. Okay, let's get right into it. Let's talk about this go-to-market plans, what they are really, and why people should be doing them, all of these things. So let's start at the beginning. Let's define for our audience what go-to-market plans are. Totally. At its core, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's their plan for going to your market. And that's an oversimplification of something that is kind of complex. The very first thing we need to do for that is define what our market is, but equally importantly, what it isn't, right? And so it can't be everybody. It can't be all educators. It can't be all types of schools, right? There's a specific application that we are best positioned to fill and we wanted to find the people who are in the position to see and deliver the value of the product that we have in mind. And at its core, that's the marketing strategy too. It's the tactics that we layer on top of it to go to our market, to bring them something they care about. And so there's that the product market fit, of course, and we spend a ton of time thinking about the product in that, but less so the market, there could be an amazing application of this exact product in a different market. And if we haven't segmented it effectively, through effective customer and buyer and user discovery research, we could be over-indexing on the wrong part of that. 
There's also the channel market fit component of the go-to-market strategy. Certain products lend themselves to being bought and discovered and shared through different channels differently. And if we forget that, we just kind of start doing things everywhere without a real comprehensive strategy or story or reason why. And especially in the early days, there's just not enough traction there to have that recipe for success. We can't be on nine channels effectively at once. We should pick the couple that our audience is on, deliver them a message that they care about that makes them think, yes, this is exactly what I need. This is exactly what I'm looking for. They really get it and then bring them into our funnel. And I think the we can miss sometimes feeling really clever. Marketing that makes you say that's good marketing isn't the goal, right? It's, oh, I need that. Oh, I want to buy that. And so if we're listening to the wrong people, their feedback is less than irrelevant. It can actually be harmful. Yes. So Rebecca said a lot in like 30 seconds. So I'm going to break it down too, because right. a lot of times I'm even taking notes right now. But the first thing she talked about is that a go-to-market is for one specific market. Um, you potentially could have different go-to-market plans for different markets, but pick your market. And she said it, there's a product market fit there. So that's really important. But then she started diving into, okay, let's think about the specific channels. And then that's my jam where I can say, yes, okay, <laughs> we have, we always need to prioritize where your primary audience is and what channels they're on and more likely to be receptive of your messages, right? So she's saying, don't go to nine channels, pick two to start, pick two that are really like, there's evidence that your audience is there. Did I get all that right, Rebecca? You want to exactly add right. And I'll give an example here. Sometimes I'll talk to really awesome marketers or founders and they'll say, what's the best channel to sell this product? And I have no idea. All I can say is, well, for products that seem to be similar to yours, these channels have worked selling to a similar audience, but I have no idea. Right. So talk to your early customers, talk to the people you're trying to sell to, ask them really high level questions that have nothing to do with your product, because that's how they're existing in the world right now. Right. Like we can't scale a company with just the customers that we acquire in its first year. But so many people miss this opportunity that the real benefit of early customers is less so the revenue than the learnings that come from it. So it's worth turning down the wrong revenue from an audience we can't scale to for use cases that we're not positioned to win to make sure we actually understand the last time you bought a product, what happened? The last conversation you had with your principal, what were you discussing? The thing that keeps you up at night, your biggest pain point, the biggest source of conflict, these are kinds of things. How are you feeling it now? How did you find that solution? And people tend to really over-index on other startups of like, oh, look, there's four startups that are doing something kind of similar to us. What we really want to know is the alternatives that your audience is using right now to solve the problem that they know they have. And that's where we then sound like a genius, because when we've captured that in their own words, that's the foundation of our positioning framework. Things that you and I think are synonymous, they may not. And so we really just want to capture the essence of their problems in their own words, the channels that they're turning to to solve them. That's the foundation of our go-to-market strategy. Oh, okay. I'm going to ma almost make you say that last part yeah. over again, because it's so good. But what you said prior to that is around audience too. Mm -hmm. And there is a misconception in ed tech in particular that 
all all ed techs are kind of they I mean, it is a unique industry. And for those of you that are listeners or would like to listen to other podcast episode, Sandro talks specifically. He runs an ed tech accelerator um, called Project Found Ed. He talked really in depth about the nuances of ed tech. And then Raina talked about how to get into in front of buyers in that world right now and post COVID and funding in ed tech. So there's a lot of things that are somewhat similar, but the audiences are so different. Totally. Like what you said was beautiful. You said, well, I don't know yet. I need to see how your audience reacts because all audiences, depending on your niche and where you're at and your focus and all of these things, what challenges you're addressing, they're all very different. So I want to just pause on the audience thing and see if you have something to say on that. Absolutely. I think we have this misnomer that ed tech is this kind of amorphous conglomerate that there is an ed tech go to market motion that will work for all products being sold to districts, but the budgets that are being used to leverage them are different. The buyers are different. The priorities are different. They may overlap in that certain conferences they attend may be effective to sell many of these products, but there really is no ed tech go to market playbook that will work for all products all the time. And our market is changing. Right? Like if I were to just try to plug in the strategy that we used at GoGuardian in 2016 right now, that would be a colossal failure. Right? I have no idea what GoGuardian should be doing right now because I've been removed from them for years. So the idea that anyone who's removed from your business knows how to scale your business is just completely false because they don't know your audience's needs at this time, how they're searching, how they're buying and what they're looking for. That's the core of what we need to answer. And so anyone who thinks that there's just like a Twitter strategy that you can plug and chug without really understanding which audiences you're trying to speak to, what you're trying to offer, your unique point of view, you're, you're missing the foundation of it. And that's where we start doing lots and lots of things that are just ineffective. Yes, yes. And you at the end were talking a, a little bit previously about just what are the foundations of a go-to-market plan? And you were asking some questions. So fundamentally, a go-to-market plan should answer what? Like, what are the top two or three questions? Who are we trying to reach? What do they care the most about? How are they solving these problems now? Where can we reach them? And is it how can we reach them too? Or no? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it could be... Email could be a aware channel, right? Can, can we yeah. reach them via direct mail or via Reddit or something like this? So basically, wherever they are discussing the problems they have with people they care about, that's probably a winning strategy. And that may mean leveraging their peers as social proof for email campaigns that talk about how neighboring schools in their same state have used your product. It may mean going to conferences and speaking about things that you know they care about with really actionable recommendations. We want to avoid the common trap of thinking of ourselves as these like thought leaders, because really at the end of the day, the customer is the thought leader. They're the ones who know what it is, is working and that they need in schools. And so that's a common mistake I see people take is of course we want to be creating and sharing unique, relevant educational content, but we don't ourselves have the expertise that people who are on the ground in schools every day do. So don't overestimate your role in the thought leadership conversation versus elevating the voices of your customers and of partners. Gosh, I love that so much. I love that so much because so often 
people come and say, I want to be a thought leader and say, great, you're on the right path. I want you to contribute to the dialogue in a way that's valuable for your audience. But isn't and that you- a question? I, I think you're right. And you're so kind answering the spirit of that question. The question really is, how can I provide more value, right? Like yes. it's not, how can I be a thought leader? Because then it's still me centric. And that's the core of a lot of marketing missteps. Not why don't people buy our product? They're so dumb. This is obviously great for them. How do we convey what we do in terms that resonate with them? And if we can't, we have to reevaluate if this is the right market for this product. Yeah. So if, if I'm a startup and I'm understaffed, I'm doing lots of jobs, you know them just as much as I do around all these types of startups. I know I need a plan. I know I need to, need to be thoughtful in my entry to the market. How do I get started in a go-to-market plan? I'm assuming the audience is involved because we've talked a little bit about them. Absolutely. But How would you like create some steps? Distilling the factors that go into our buyer personas is the very first output deliverable of the steps that we've talked about. And so we'll need to be doing lots of market research, user research if we have early traction, customer research of people who may be buyers but not users and if we're selling to districts, et cetera, and distilling that into the factors that changes how people buy. And so if we look at them, basically the breakdown should be the factors that they're using to buy. And so we really understand that when we're creating content, we're speaking to our anxious Ada, who is just really stressed out about how her kid is going to get into college, not teachers. Because speaking to teachers is really hard because they're different. They want different things. They teach different grades. They have all kinds of different challenges. And so we wanted to still the actual criteria that makes a fictitious overarching representation of the people who we're actually selling to. So that's the very first step. Once we have the personas, it's clear how the journeys come from there. And so what is a sample journey of how somebody would really find your product? Would they become aware of this issue in Google solutions using which keywords? What kinds of things would they be looking for? Would they be scholarly publications? Would they be general blogs and searches? Would they go to a forum and post about it? Would they go to a conference and ask? Would they share it with a friend? That kind of thing. The persona informs the journey. And then that tells us the core of which of these strategies and tactics we want to emphasize. And so if it really is so primarily word of mouth driven, then a content strategy may take a long, long, long time to see any traction whatsoever, especially if we don't have paid budget to distribute it. So it may mean that doing fewer things better, i.e. more effective email marketing, referral marketing, and spending a little bit of money on a couple of key events is the better approach for that. But we do that from the buyer personas and the journeys that show us how they're actually transacting and buying and gives us the ideas of where the levers we have to pull are and the channels we'd prioritize. Great. Um, Does some of this depend on the startups or the company's runway or expected short-term versus long-term results? I say this with like a curiosity lens because, you know, COVID forced a lot of ed techs to say, I need something right now. I need something right now. or I'm going to try to go into another market to parents or whatever it may be. But I know that really affects all of what you're saying. Absolutely. So that definitely does. If we have six months of runway, hopefully not. We say we need to raise a series A 11 months from now. Then I would probably say that maybe we over-index a little bit on paid ads to get more awareness and eyeballs and impression, even just to test the messaging, than we would if we were saying we want to grow organically and slowly, we don't plan to fundraise or we have these different long-term goals, 
then we would say that we would index in different channels. There's also like the, the channel market fit I mentioned. Certain products lend themselves better to certain types of channels. And so if there's a really long buying cycle or consideration cycle, usually paid saturates pretty quickly. And if we don't have a more robust organic behind it, then we've actually just like burned that bridge. So if it takes me on average to sell to a district nine-ish months, then maybe a paid ad will get me in front of somebody, but I need a much more robust content engine behind it to actually convert them from there. And so keeping in mind that the type of product we're selling, the time to see the value, that all of this influences that channel market fit of which kinds of programs would make sense. And then our goals, of course, right? If we are going out of business in a month, then we really just need to double down on focusing on those core users and how they're transacting and buying. And then those are the ones that we're focusing on. Gosh. Those are still the ones we're focusing on when we're building our buyer personas, by the way, right? Uh, somewhere people go wrong thinking of edge cases, like, yes, 80% of our customers are like this, but we have these 20% who are like this. And sometimes they miss that if we're actually disaggregating these cohorts, those 20% could be the power users. And so if we say more of our users are like this 80%, but less of the revenue comes from them, we've missed the buyer persona, right? Those could be a neutral persona. Neutral, we think negative, somebody that we would sell to if they come to us, but we're not actively devising our product roadmap and our strategy around them. We really wanna understand these power users. If we were going out of business in a month, who are we thinking of focusing on? That's the core of the buyer persona. And where it gets trickier is people who think they're in your target market, but aren't in a position to see and deliver the value of your product. Those are people we, we don't really want to be selling to, and we certainly don't want to be changing our strategy around. So it's not just about sheer volume or traffic or impressions. It's about really analyzing those cohorts to understand who is the one that comprises that power user and would be most upset if your product disappeared, because those are the ones that we want to replicate. And not to complicate this more, but in the world yeah. of EdTech, we have B2C mm -hmm. and B2B. Yeah. Right. So I, I know that the power B2C is B2C if we're selling right yeah. students yeah. your ed kind of. Yeah. So B, you know, B2C, we have the power users and that's really helpful. And also on the B2B, we don't want to ignore the power users, but sometimes in ed tech, the power users don't have decision making authority to renew or buy as uh, well. Yes. So you're you're hitting something really important. Users versus buyers versus customers are not interchangeable terms. So Users may be teachers, they're the end users of the product. They may be students. And so their happiness is really important for retention and re-engagement, right? And we really wanna keep them happy with the product. But the buyer may be the director of instructional technology or curriculum or something at the district, and they might not even know each other. And so their priorities may be different. And so when we're talking about our personas, the buyer persona and the user persona are influential, but they're not necessarily interchangeable in a B2B setting. In a B2C setting, the parent may be the end user, so they would be the buyer and the user, but if their kid is the end user, I said B2B setting, right? Yeah, the kid is the end user, then we still have two different priorities potentially, and we wanna keep that in mind. It's a lot easier in a B2C setting because they tend to know each other, either I am the end user, or it's my kid and I know them, when they don't know each other, there's a lot more complexity involved. Yeah, and then even in the B2B, we have like this gray area of like people that influence purchasing but don't make that. And then that those sometimes can be the connectors between the user yes. 
Um, so we're talking about instructional coach. It really depends on your product. Absolutely. But when you're thinking about doing these personas, do you do like, here's my personas of my users, my buyers and my customers, or do we not go down that rabbit hole? Um, so early, early on, customers may not be necessary. And so unless we're really actively thinking we have to develop our lifecycle campaigns more effectively, we need a more effective upsell, retention, cross-sell strategy. Customer personas are really important there. At the very beginning, if we're talking about just developing this go-to-market strategy, you can probably get away with just really thoughtful, well-developed buyer and user personas. Okay, great. And then something I thought you would find interesting, and you might know, is that when people come to us and they don't have those, we can create them, but they're never going to be as good as someone like, you know, like if I was hiring your team back in the day, if you were a consultant to do them, we will... But what I love doing is looking at what the, they think their current personas are and then adding a slice. If we're getting on Twitter, I'm going to say, here's your persona on Twitter I because love it. the change influences their behavior and who they are. And we show like this is an example of your persona there. So no, that's a really good point. And um, what I see go wrong most often in that is that only current customers are used to create the buyer personas. And so by the time you've said, hi, my name is Alana, I'm from Curious Cardinals and we pair K-12 students with college mentors to pursue their passions. Everything somebody says in response to that is filtered through the lens of what they think you want to hear. And so we need prospects who are the doppelganger by any number of factors because they're teachers in similar districts, et cetera, to, to compare and then say as little about our company and product as physically possible until the very end. And so it's usually just a sentence like, hi, my name is Rebecca. Thank you so much for talking with us. You fit our target audience perfectly. And so what I'm trying to understand today is just your authentic answers to a couple of these questions. If it's all right with you, I'll say as little about the product we're thinking of as possible so I don't bias your answers. Two people have ever said, no, that's not all right with me. And I don't even know how many thousands of people of that process. So basically, we because we want to understand what their actual pain points are, not just these secondary ones that we currently envision. Because if we're in the secondary zone, it's totally possible that we end up in this kind of nice to have vitamin category of like, but then we're the first to go, right? Versus it could be the exact same product that if positioned differently, if calibrated slightly differently, or if different features were emphasized or prioritized, it would be so important. And so we wanna understand how they are actually interacting with the world today without our product. Those are the customers that we need to convert. And again, we can't scale a company with just the customers we acquire in any given year. So it's not really an opportunity to sell and pitch your product. It's really an opportunity to understand if you don't exist, how does your prospect think about and engage with you? The objections that come up, the questions, the confusion, will be in your marketing campaigns, but you won't know why, right? Like all of the data in the world will tell us what's happening. This screen, this page, this button is a source of tremendous drop off, but the conversations tell us, well, I don't really care about that. I didn't get this. It seemed too expensive. We don't know that just from the data. And so we want to make sure we're not biasing the answers with leading questions. This is not an opportunity to sell. Prospects and people who have never heard of you absolutely must go into the buyer personas. Otherwise, they're just customer personas because people already know how to solve the problem that you they, they're paying you to solve. Yeah. And fundamentally, by just looking at that one slice, you're ignoring an entire market opportunity that your product can make a difference, right? Completely. And it may be a better one. Yeah. And that's where um, I love talking to Rebecca because she says a lot of the times her instinct is, 
is that the right market for you? Is what is your exact, what is your best product market fit? And for those of you that have not even thought about that, I want you to just pause and think about the people you're reaching currently, what your product's serving. And do you have a handle on all those questions that, that Rebecca was asking? Because I think nine out of 10 startups I meet, and sometimes they're also mature companies and they might be going through a transition or rethinking or trying to keep up with competition. They do not know their audience as well as they should. And it's, it's a significant gap. It's a good point. So let's get into a little bit of mistakes around developing go-to-market strategies. You mentioned a couple, but I also noticed that people call them go-to-market plans and strategies when they're not. Like if somebody's out there and saying, I, I want to make a plan and maybe it's, but I've, I think I should call it go-to-market because it might, people might perk their ears up. Like, so what are, like, do you see people mislabeling it? And then also what are the common mistakes when people are going through it? It's a great question. So the way we want to set a go-to-market strategy is by making our objectives very clear, then defining the strategies to get there, and then implementing the tactics. And so the tactics would be like post twice a week on Twitter, this is the blog article we want, et cetera. Too often we start with the tactics of our go-to-market strategy is tactics is a campaign calendar, which is so important. You have to have that to have a roadmap of where we're going and visibility into the company. But we also have to be willing to pivot off of that. If something is disproportionately performing well, we want that to be like the, great, this is fantastic. This is our new benchmark to beat. Let's iterate and pivot from there because our tactic needs to support the strategy, which is basically this set of plans that's going to help us reach the objectives that we have. And so the th way I see people going wrong is that they have basically an editorial calendar. This is the tactics that they're calling a go-to-market strategy, but they've missed the actual strategy of we are going to reach these customers through these channels for these reasons with the overall company objective, which is increasing top line revenue, growing the number of monthly active users, something like that, right? And so we need our objectives with our North Star metrics that are most important, the strategy for how we think we're gonna get there, and then the tactics. But too often, we just go straight to the tactics. Our go-to-market strategy is just a campaign calendar. And so when we do that, we've really lost the plot and things can only be so effective there. When we're evaluating how things are going, we go the exact opposite order. So instead of saying like, email marketing just doesn't work for this audience, we would evaluate the tactics. What was the subject line? How was the list segmented? When was it sent? What was the offer? What's the formatting even? How many users are looking at mobile? Then we might say, okay, we have some levers to fix here. The subject lines are performing well, but our calls to action aren't because our click-through rate is low and our conversion rate is low. That would be a tactic we evaluate before we would say something like the strategy. And so the, the analogy I use is kind of like this is a, developing your blueprint. To set your blueprint, you, you never start just like hucking bricks around and saying this will be a fireplace, I think, the foundation's over here, like this is the door. We would have an actual blueprint before we start just like applying bricks, right? But by the same time, so that's our objective strategy and tactics. We develop the blueprint first before we start building. We also would never say indoor plumbing is just not going to work in this building. 
too bad before we would evaluate the tactics, which are how were the lines configured? I'm not a plumber. This is kind of the analogy, I think. But basically, this is the, the analogy of we need to evaluate the tactics before we say the strategies are ineffective, anchoring back to the objectives that we wouldn't be hitting if they were ineffective. But we can't decide on what these are until the objectives are very clearly defined from a top level business perspective and aligned with all of the departments. The strategies for how to hit them are implemented and the tactics are from there. But too often people are just like, our audience isn't on Twitter, that's it, without evaluating what are we tweeting, is it valuable, is it consistent, et cetera. And so that's probably, I'd love to hear your thoughts in your world too, of do you hear that of people just being like, we need a new magical marketing hack channel that is gonna help us scale forever. And usually that's not the truth, there's probably not a missing magical channel they've never heard of. The objective and the strategy haven't been aligned to the tactics. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think um, going tactics first is what I see a lot, too. Um, I think people go to tactics for a lot of reasons. One, they've always done them before, so they've got up capacity. And even if they did all those smart things you suggested, they may still continue on the channel because that's what they've always done. And that's that's what I see. Um, I feel good uh, about this. I know how to use it, right? It's I got a team set up. I feel good about it. All of these things. But it, the more set up you are in a channel and the more you hire and invest in that channel, the less agile you are to switch to other channels. Um, so yeah, I just noticed that because that's the number one reason I think, you know, when people ask us, cause we, we fundamentally are strategy with organic social media and community, but we have to, for us to succeed, we already have to embed into a go-to-market plan. Right. And we have to already be a part of and connect the dotted line to what your ultimate organization objectives are. So totally. we can go in and be amazing on social, be amazing in community, but if it doesn't connect to the dotted line of what your organization is, eventually the the fundamental belief that this is working and contributing to what the organization cares about is going to stop and they will stop with us. So that's why I always pause. And that's why a lot of times when you were working at your company, I would funnel people to you. I say, help, Rebecca can help you because you need that framework in place before you can really assess if, if organic social is the right fit. And I reject, I mean, not reject is a bad word, but I, I say you're not ready for us yet to so many people that come to us because they I can just tell that we're not the right channel for them at the right moment you know so tactic driven first and it's it's a very we've always used to do this maybe we used to have an agency that done it so we're going to do it now that it kind feels of good because it feels like you're making progress right you're doing things they're in public you're getting some kind of external validation in the form of measurable metrics of impressions and clicks and opens it. So it feels like you're making progress, but you could be even farther from your goals as a direct result if this is the wrong audience, for example, right? And another mistake I see people make is letting each platform's metrics just kind of be evaluated in silo, right? And so each platform will have slightly different ways of reporting. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn will all have like relevant overlapping metrics, but the way they're calculating them is different, the way the goals are different. And so if we're just saying like this, let's evaluate the Facebook strategy by looking exclusively at on-platform metrics, we've really lost the plot of the overall objectives and these North Star metrics and if they're laddering to them effectively or not. 
Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on some really complicated things, and I think we're going to definitely have you on as a part two guest on some of this stuff. Um, For those of you that are educators, thank you for hanging in here. I hope you find what we're talking about valuable, even if, you know, what Rebecca and I say, you might not understand some terms and acronyms. Um, We'll do our best also in the show notes to give you some resources around it, but I hope it provides you a foundation of how ed tech companies are really trying to serve your needs and your challenges. And potentially how they go wrong just because you know they're human and they have lack of resources as well but is there anything you want to say to the educators that might be listening Mm -hmm. some of them are thinking about getting into ed tech some Mm -hmm. of them just got into ed tech some of them are just curious you know use a lot of ed tech products totally i think that's a great question so the whole goal of the ed tech industry is to do what you just said is to leverage the innovation and the power of technology to solve some of the most complex pressing problems that our schools are designed to solve. And so this is supposed to be an ecosystem. And I say that there should be, for for the educators, pedagogical skepticism of whether or not the efficacy of the products you're seeing is actually satisfactory to you. And so I love EdTech. I think it is the best way to solve some of the most complex societal issues that we face. But not all ed tech is good or efficient or effective. And so being skeptical of that is so valid and warranted and something that I love and the best ed tech companies are proactively addressing. Those are the ones that care about FXD, are rooting their design and research. It's not just one lone visionary founder who wishes he had something when he was a kid and just kind of like sails into the sunset, right? So I think that being mindful that we're all part of this ecosystem, that the innovation that comes from the speed and the autonomy of the private sector is designed to complement the far-reaching services and proof that we don't harm a whole bunch of kids in the process of having a lot of more checks and balances in the nonprofit and the public sectors. And so I think this is all a rich ecosystem that for any of us to be successful, we really need to be thinking about that. And so where people go wrong is forgetting that, right? Of any one of us on an island, if I am a teacher who regrets, who rejects all tech, my kids are worse off. If I'm an ed tech founder who is never in classrooms, my products aren't as effective as they could be. This is an ecosystem that has to really think about serving each other first, and that's where the rewards come from. And that's, we talked a little bit about like this idea of being a thought leader, but really adding value. That's where I see people go wrong is forgetting that if you put the students and the teachers and the educators at the center of any of this, that is essentially the foundation of your go-to-market strategy. Gosh, I love that. I love how you've fundamentally flipped the script so much for ed tech organizations, because a lot of the times is the, they, fundamentally believe in their product as they should, but they just don't understand why people aren't buying it. And then the way for them to, they think for people to buy it is to talk about their product more, to talk about their features more. And I know we're getting more into the marketing, less into the go to market, but it's how do you specifically meet the challenges and the needs? And what you said is if they did not have your product, like what would they do before that? into that stuff because a lot of ed tech products like we worked with uh able schools way back in the day and master school scheduling like what they just use magnet boards i kid you not they use like google spreadsheets and physical like magnet boards and whiteboards to like but that's what they did so they couldn't really reimagine and when you talk to educators um 
I want to bring up Raina's episode. We'll put it in the show notes because she talks about how you as educators can really be empowered, especially when you are doing pilots and be a partner alongside them. And don't ever as an educator feel like you need to say things are good because they're better than they were before. Right. I know educators are the most nicest human beings ever. Um, but you being nice is not going to help them succeed too. So just speak with your heart, speak with your truth and is good, good enough. How do you make it great? Yeah. And I mean, that's back to the leading questions too, right? It's just the educators who are in a pilot or in a focus group, which I hate, by the way, don't do focus groups. Um, they're not like the, all the customers we need to scale. Right. And so if we are asking questions that lead to certain answers, we haven't helped anyone because they're trying to be nice, they're trying to be helpful, but you're not actually getting the insights that you need. And so removing your ego, removing any attachment to the answers, not correcting people when they don't know how to use something, right? All of these are factors that go into the go-to-market research that make it more effective. And if people are trying to figure out, like, I do market research, but not to the level of you. And it is kind of slightly intimidating the way you're talking about it. Cause I'm like, I bet you, she knows how to do it really, really well. Like how do they get started in, in thinking about, especially if I'm a founder, I can't hire a firm or anything like that, but how do I get some resources that can help me? Maybe we can put them in the show notes too. Completely. Uh, Stephanie March, I want to say is her last name. User research is the book. It's this amazing field guide that I used when I was just getting started. It's this lime green cover, and it essentially breaks down all the different types of research you could want to do, which scenarios are best suited for them, and then a field guide to how to do them effectively and cost effectively. It's a great place to start. Oh, good, good. And you, for those of you listening still, you can tell I'm a learner as much as you all, too. So I'm going to go out and buy that book. I would like to get more. Your audience is the foundation of everything. So if you don't know your audience, you don't know their challenges, you don't know how they word things, what keywords they look for, you're fundamentally going to fail. And all of your efforts are, are going to be for naught. Yeah. I mean, the best encapsulation of this is actually in Wolf of Wall Street. Do you remember that scene where he asked him to sell him the pen and the guy starts saying, oh, well, it's a nice pen. It's a heavy pen. But the way he actually sold effectively is by asking the customer, what are you using this pen for? What are you in the market for? What are you using currently? Well, based on what you've told me, this is the only pen in the world for you, right? That's essentially the go-to-market strategy, right? If it's just like, this is a nice product. It's a good product. It's a pretty product. We designed it for this versus what are you using for? Why do you want this? That, that flip is the difference between effective and ineffective go-to-market strategy and even the copywriting there. Yes. And then we can even take it another step further and tell that person's amazing journey with that one pen. So it resonates with other people like that. So then we start getting into those case studies and talking and saying, because in education in particular, I don't care what you do, but I do care if my colleagues or someone like me has had success with the product. Yeah. 91% of educators say that word of mouth is the most important channel to them. It's almost shocking it's not higher, right? And so leveraging those case studies, um, we do things often called like nearest neighbor campaigns of who is the nearest customer who's satisfied with our product to a target market. It could be based on state. It could be based on any number of geographical factors. Let's leverage their success because that is so much stronger than anything we can say. Even if you or I say the exact same thing that a customer says, it's more credible coming from them. 
Agreed. Agreed. Well, Rebecca, you have been amazing. I am jotting down notes like crazy, thinking of buying books. You've got me thinking of things even differently. And I love having these conversations because I'm a steeped in a different world. And we we have this Venn diagram where we overlap, but you're also on the other side too. And gosh, I learned so much. So I want to end this podcast with a, a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests. One is I think that you'll have some really interesting answers on this one, but in this world of being online, virtual mm-hmm. boundaries between work and work and you know personal life and pandemic and stress and burnout, how do you keep going? Like are there things that inspire you or like you read, things that you know yeah. you do physically? How do you keep going and put that pep in your step in the day? Yeah, it's a great question. Seeing where I get energy and not trying to force things that don't, where they don't go is important. So in the morning, I really try not to have meetings if it's at all possible, because that's where I get energy from being creative and writing, strategizing and research. So having the routine around where my energy is best suited to tasks, Uh, but also things I love doing. Like I love mountain biking. And so doing that with as much frequency as possible, even if it's for 20 minutes, just making sure that there's some degree of routine to things that I just enjoy doing. Those are my two big things. Yes. And for you educators out there too, you might not have flexibility on your schedule during the day, but you certainly can prioritize things that give you joy. And in one of the episodes we had with Tracy Seelock, one of our educators, talked specifically about bringing up boundaries and saying no at times, because educators in particular say, yes, I can do yard duty. Yes, I can lead the robotics club. Yes, yes, yes. And then they forget about themselves. So your thing about mountain biking really reminded me also of educators and their passions. And sometimes they even forget that they have passions, right? Sad, absolutely. You can't pass yes. the cap, right? Yes. Well, The last thing is, how can people get in touch with you, Rebecca, if they want to learn more or just follow along with you? The way we did, let's connect on Twitter, at Rebecca Sadwick. That's my maiden name, S-A-D-W-I-C-K. Okay, and we'll put that in the show notes too. So please follow Rebecca. I follow her and it's prioritized. I see her every time I open up my stream because I'm more likely to respond to you. So I'm like, ooh, smart. Ooh, didn't think of that. (laughs) So she's a great one to follow. I really appreciate your time, Rebecca. Um, For those of you that are joining us, I wanna just send a heartfelt thank you. We really appreciate your support. Um, I don't do this for the views, the downloads. I do this to hope that I make a difference in one of your lives where you can say, hey, I thought about this differently. And it might be a strategic shift or a perception shift. It might be like, oh, I'm just going to do that one thing, you know, like what Rebecca said around personas. I'm going to start some doing some personas and they don't have to be great. I don't want the perfection to be, you know, the sake of just good enough, get something done to start and then you can make them better. So think about the little things Rebecca said as well, as well as just mind shifts. Like how do we reframe things? How do I think differently of when an ed tech company approaches me if I'm an educator? And if I'm an ed tech company, gosh, do I have a go-to-market plan? (laughs) 
<laughs> and I say, good, do I know my users? So that's what I, I hope for all of our episodes is that you fundamentally walk away with at least one thing. So thank you all for joining us. You can access this episode's show notes at leoniconsultinggroup.com. That's two G's, consultinggroup.com backslash 20 for all the notes and all the resources that Rebecca talked about as well. So thank you all. We will see you next time on all things marketing and education. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoniconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links, and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends. So please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.